Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Average to Elite podcast. As always, I'm your host, Chris Lowe, and today I'm joined by the one and only Dr. Dan Martin. So, Dan, how are you, my man? You well? Very good. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for the invitation. How are you? Yeah, I'm all good. I'm all good. Now, I appreciate you are a very, very busy man, and uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. So, uh, I clearly know who you are, but for the listeners who may not, uh, could you just give a really brief background into yourself, please? And essentially, who is Dr. Dan Martin? Yeah, um, as you say, Dan Martin. So um, I am a I guess, performance nutrition consultant. So I, I sort of wear, wear a, a number of, of small hats, um, one of which are possibly the most I'm, I'm known for is my role within professional horse racing. So I've worked in racing since 2014, um, and at present I'm sort of the head of industry nutrition services, um, sort of develop and implement at, um, the industry-wide sort of strategy for, from licensing to retirement for jockeys, whether they're fit or whether, whether they're injured, working with, with race courses to get the, the catering provision right. Um, and alongside that, um, the performance nutritionist for Southampton Football Club a couple of days a week, and then a couple of other smaller roles, one in in Formula One, and um, I'm a senior performance nutritionist for the, for, for the EIS in, in Olympic sport. Um, so it's an eclectic mix of sports, but it's um, it's a good challenge uh, all, all the same. I've moved away from the from the research side of my role um, from John Moores University over the last couple of years. Still supervise a couple of PhD students on their projects, but um, for the time being, very much um, applied facing work now. Yeah, absolutely incredible. So like I said, you wear many hats, various hats, work with a wide variety of athletes. Um, and the reason why I got you on the podcast today is really to talk about your main area of study, I guess, in terms of behavior change. So essentially what I'd love to do today is basically answer the question of how can an athlete become more consistent with their eating habits to improve their overall performance and reach their highest potential? So we know that athletes struggle a lot with inconsistency. You know, you always hear it as a coach. I'm on it. I'm off it. I've fallen off the wagon. Oh, but I'll get back on it on Monday. There's so much inconsistency there. And therefore, they fail to develop like momentum and actually uh, get results, which is the bottom line, right? And that's what us as nutritionists try to do to uh, you know facilitate that change. So what I love to do is for the athlete who's listening today, just have some form of frameworks some ideas or some concepts to take away to make their behaviors and habits improve so they can develop that consistency so they no longer have to say i'm on it i'm off it and so on so to start off then why do we feel that athletes are perhaps inconsistent so why do they struggle with consistency from the eating side of things yeah, i guess it could be a number a number of reasons and when you're working with with an athlete or a group of athletes or, or an individual athlete, the first thing I'm looking for sometimes is what are the what are the barriers preventing that consistency, um, and also I'm interested in well what are also their their enablers, um, what are the things that currently exist in the life that are, are, are good that promote the behaviour, or actually what are the things that don't necessarily exist that we can implement um, so we can effectively enable enable that consistency, enable, enable that be, that behavior that we're looking for. Um, I mean, on previous, when I've, I've run these sort of like pre, previous, um, had these previous conversations, the model or the other three pillars of whatever behavior is, it's always been around the capability. So does the athlete know what they should be doing in the first place from a, from a knowledge point of view? Can they make the correct decisions if they're faced with multiple choices of foods? Um, because sometimes they've got the they've got the intent and they've got the the motivation and the will and they're committed to to doing what they want to do, but the inconsistency comes from a lack of knowledge. Um, is it a case of as I've, I've just touched on there? What is the motive? What is the level of commitment that we're talking about? Do they just fancy it on a particular day because the weather's right um, or the um, the mood's right or they're around the right type of people? So how committed are they? And then perhaps the biggest one when we're talking around inconsistencies, because the thing that changes most in most people's lives and athletes' lives is the environments that we sort of knock around in. So if you were to 
I guess, call up any one of your athletes any time of day. They're probably in one of four environments, fully at home, they're at work, um, they're commuting to wherever they're going, sort of between places. Um, or if we're talking about athletes, they'd be at the place of competition, they'd be at a competition venue or, or, or a training facility. And are those environments set up to do what we want, want to do? And it may be a case of some of these environments are, and that's when we get the consistency. And it could be a case of, well, some of these environments aren't set up for us to do the behaviour or to succeed. And that's where we drop down, that's where we fail, that's where we, leap, we relapse and the, the consistency falls to pieces. Um, so those are the three main pillars around the knowledge and knowing what to do, having the commitment and the motivation to do it consistently. And then actually, even assuming you've got those two things, the places that we um, yeah, sort of frequent most, most often are those environments set up to do what we want to do um, to, to keep that consistency. Yeah, that's an awesome overview. Um, so just to touch on the commitment side of things. So an athlete be very committed and very consistent in other areas of their development. So, you know, I spoke to a triathlete yesterday and she's like, oh, I haven't missed a single session in three years. So incredibly consistent with that, but then very inconsistent with their food, very consistent with their rehab with their sleep, but then may not be with their food. So why do you feel like that some athletes are committed in some areas and perhaps not committed in others? Is it just because of a lack of knowledge in that area? Just haven't got that same buy-in, don't see the value of it. What do we think is perhaps the main barrier for that specific level of commitment in that area? Yeah, great question. I think you alluded to it just there at, at the end. It could be a number of things, but quite often when athletes are displaying the commitment in one area but they're not in another maybe it's around the belief system and the value of what it is that they're inconsistent about so if they never miss a training session they go to bed at the same time every night it's likely because they see the value in turning up to training because they know what they're going to get out of that session is hopefully an improvement in fitness or an improvement in strength or development of whatever um, component of fitness is that, that you're working on they see the value um, and understand the impact of sleep or lack of good quality sleep on their recovery or how it impacts them the next day. So if we are, for example, um, observing inconsistency around nutrition, the perhaps one of the first lines of inquiry I'd be going down is, does this person um, not hold the same level of value on the nutrition as they do on the other aspects of their, of their performance lifestyle? Um, is it that they don't necessarily believe um, like carbohydrate timing will um, actually make that much of a difference to performance or any nutrient timing for that point of view, for, for, for that matter? Um, do they think, well, actually, I've got to this stage in my career or I've got to this level of performance without a real focus or without a real concerted effort of getting my nutrition right? Um and it's, I've been okay up to now. So therefore, there's, maybe there's an underlying belief um, or value that actually um, we don't need to place as much emphasis on this as we do other things. And then again, that's when you get to play at it. So they'll do some things quite well um, or they'll do something sort of just inconsistently. So some days you get model perfect sort of dietary behavior that goes hand in glove with, with, with training load and training demands. And then other days it sort of goes out the window. Um, and so, yeah, pretty you know, first and foremost, possibly down to um, beliefs and values. Yeah, good, great answer. Um, I remember having a conversation like a while ago with a rugby player and he's like, well, if it's not broke, don't fix it. But I know from reviewing his food, it's there's huge scope to improve and develop here. And it's then the role of the nutritionist or the coach to kind of make the athlete aware of that. So what where he is now or where she is now, where they can potentially get to by doing X, Y, Z with their nutrition. So if you were presented with an athlete like that, who perhaps doesn't quite see the value or they have this kind of belief systems not quite in place, how can like a nutritionist or a coach kind of upgrade their level of thinking to get to that higher level of operation with the nutrition? Yeah, it, it, it's such a tough area because one conversation cannot change someone's fundamental belief system. So if we are talking about trying to change an athlete's 
belief system around the power or the importance of food and diet um, on whatever it is, their health, their sort of training and adaptations, the performance, um, it won't happen quickly. This happen, It's got to be a little bit more of a slow burner. And in truth, it probably isn't something that the nutritionist or a coach can do in isolation because it will ultimately depend on what makes that person tick and what would it be that makes that person's that, that person fundamentally have a have a rethink of their of, of, of their beliefs around around the the role of nutrition and for different athletes and different individuals it'll be a different thing that makes them tick what like i said like there's many methods one method that i use and it's not in isolation again it's it's layered quite often it's not just one thing you need to concurrently do a few things um but um, success stories and context-specific success stories and case studies and role modeling and peer modeling of, um, of people that they actually respect and, and, and value. So if, if this person um, that I hold in high regard does it this way and this is the success that they've experienced and they are telling me that this is a good thing, um, it'll make them have a real think about actually if this aspirational person that I would like to emulate um, um, is doing it this way and they're telling me to do it this way. Um, maybe there's some truth in this. Forget our degrees, master's degrees, PhDs, qualifications, years of experience of working with athletes. Sometimes athletes need to speak to other athletes and they'll only believe other athletes because they are, you know, sort of walking in the same shoes. Um, so I think the power of recruiting um, aspirational either role models or peer models within within the athlete group is a, is a really effective tool that you can do. And when I do work with, with groups of athletes, so if we're talking about a team sport environment, sometimes I will try to, a quick win for me will to become familiar with or identify and then become familiar with the senior figures within the group. So if I can win over three or four senior um, senior heads, um in in a group in a changing room and convince them that what i'm implementing is good value for them just as as as, as humans as as people first and foremost and then it will actually have an impact on the health and ultimately the performance um i don't have to convince a room of 30 people i can in, i can try to in, in, uh, influence a, a room of 30 people but if i've got the correct three or four people on, on board they can do a lot of the messaging in the in the shadows for me when I'm not around because sometimes that's when the real influence and the real changes and the real um, I guess the yeah the, the the potential shifts in mindset take place and it's maybe it's when, when you're not around rather than when you are around. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, just identifying those role role models will massively influence the behaviors of their peers. I know I've done that quite a few times. Like you know, there's always gonna be like say. 5% of a group that's perhaps the leaders, more the senior guys who have just got so much experience and so much kind of wisdom from this um, that, you know, you could just leverage them quite massively. So it might just be a case of one-to-one with the athlete, um, just like plant a seed and then go and speak to this guy or this this uh, person and, um, yeah, see how it's benefited them. And I kind of, again, plant a seed and just develop from there. So, yeah, I, I absolutely love that. that. That's really, really cool. So you mentioned uh, environment being an absolutely huge uh, sort of player here that kind of molds and shapes behavior. So if you were to walk into an environment that perhaps was not overly sort of conducive to eating well and things like that, which I believe you would have um, encountered in sort of uh, jockeys and things like that, how have you then tried to improve the environment to shape an athlete's behavior? And then what perhaps the initial kind of barriers you kind of experienced when trying to do that? Yeah, how how long have we got? Um, because there's so many things, and I guess as I said, if if you break it down to four different environments, the the ease and feasibility of creating change is easier in some than it is in the others. So if we're talking around, if we've got a keen athlete that wants to do the right thing and they're and they're engaging with us because they see the value in us and and they understand it's an area they want to improve on, in theory, changing the whole environment should be pretty straightforward. Um, either work your way through or get rid of the, the foods um, that are not conducive to the goal or the behavior right now um, and start to re, I guess, populate that 
the the kitchen environment, the home environment with a the foods that you want them to eat. They're available at the right times, and any gaps in the capability to make those foods. So if there's equipment that's missing, well, let's get it in there. So we've got no excuses for not being able to to provide ourselves with the, with the foods that we need. So the home environment, in theory, is is straightforward. The barriers that you'd face with the home environment comes down to who does that person live with. And so when we're talking about the environment, we're not just talking about the physical environment. We're also talking about the social environment, the people that are in these four environments as well. So if you're working with a young athlete, we may be in a, in a house share situation where their housemate isn't an athlete and they're not overly um, interested in living an athletic lifestyle. So when I was saying there, get rid of the maybe some of the foods or certainly reduce the foods or the presence of foods and drinks that aren't conducive to the goal um, or the behaviours that we're trying to instill in the, in, the, in the athlete. If the other person that lives there has got no interest, interest or no intent to support that person or it, 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 those are the barriers that you're going to run into and sometimes it's not necessarily um housemates you know we see this with families as well this could be your significant other half they're not an athlete either but just because you're going down a certain path or you've got a certain goal doesn't mean the rest of the family does um and so in those situations those are the main barriers and the way i overcome them Sometimes is you've got to work with the athlete and it comes down to the commitment and um, in the moment decision-making um, to not relapse. And some of that will come down to emotional state and emotional intelligence and emotional control. And again, we can help coach them around that. But then also you can, if you've got the, um, the availability of a performance psychologist if you're in a club environment get them on board as well so how can you get your athlete to even in the presence of um barriers or in the presence of things that could make you relapse or not follow the follow the script make the correct decision despite that or actually just work with the family member or the housemate and equip them with even though you're doing this and you'll have your stuff in this is how you can support the athlete if, if, if he could and some of it will just be social and emotional support for doing the behavior or achieving the goal and some of it could be actual physical support so whenever you're having this if you could do this for for the athlete that'd be great um so you're trying to i guess carve your way around some of the the landmines that may still exist even though in an ideal world they'd live on their own and you just pull everything out when we talk about club environments or, or certainly performance environments uh, where, where an athlete may go to train, sometimes it's it's not in your power as the nutritionist. You don't have the influence. You might not have the budget. I work as a consultant. I'm there ultimately to advise and say, this is what excellent looks like and this is what best practice would be. I would advise you to invest some money into this or invest some space into, into that ultimately it's down to the club whether whether they go ahead and do it um so you may come up against resistance whether that's financial or just pride other people stepping on people's toes because you want to change the way people's people are working and one thing i've come to learn over there over the last few years at least and a lot of this came from me working horse racing because there was a heck of a lot of resistance to change and as soon as you start asking someone to do something differently i.e chefs performance chefs catering staff um coaches um they were looked at even if it's a good idea if you're just imparting or inf inflicting change on someone you're gonna meet resistance um so i'm a big big believer in sort of co-developing strategies um and ultimately i believe not just to get people on board and then it's easier for us to implement what we want to implement um quite often if you get the everyone's ideas at the very inception and not halfway down the line and people all of a sudden start saying oh we need to change this we need to change that if you get the ideas at the beginning and us we're the person that's influential we'll be able to identify pretty quickly what what are bad ideas but actually you'll you'll there'll be some blind spots that you even know you add and people will offer some some good solutions or some good ideas for solutions and you basically co-develop what the strategy is going to be and then you implement it <clears throat> but because everyone had a a say at the beginning and it's not a shock because everyone was involved in discussions, whether they were focus groups or they're individual. Um, there's a lot less resistance to change because they know the change is coming 
they've contributed to it and hopefully um yeah you can implement what you want to implement and, and get some of those performance behaviors in in place and naturally there may be some some compromises um and that may come down to budgets or whatever but i think if you follow that blueprint um generally speaking you'll get more done than than not in terms of what you want to achieve yeah that again absolutely brilliant answer and i'm really glad that you brought up the home environment um because obviously we can put like the best plan in place of all right let's reduce x food in the cupboards let's put x y food back in and we can like mold and change the environment there really well but then it also accounting for like the social environments like who's living in that environment that can influence those habits because all well and good having the plan but you know if they've had a bad day at work bad day at training and they perhaps like a little bit stressed or overwhelmed or they have anxiety or something like that then that can quickly unravel their their original plan of action because you know emotion overrides logic kind of 90 percent of the time and then when they have like the misses in the ear like oh it's okay have this you make you feel better all that kind of stuff so i'm really glad you kind of brought that side of it up um so in terms of like sports psychology as well, like I, I imagine you very similar to me, like that's had such a huge role in terms of allowing an athlete to be more emotionally consistent and therefore improve the eating habits at home or when they're away from the club, the training ground, away from training and stuff like that. So yeah, I'm really glad that you sort of highlighted the, the importance of that because it is absolutely huge. So when it comes to say just changing their home environment, because most athletes listen to this, well, this will be where they spend most of their time, really. How can we um like slowly change the environment at home? Would you just say, like, right, just get everything out of the cupboard, just throw it in the bin? Or would you say slowly do it over time? Would you then say, like, okay, have some kind of foods in here that you like, whether it's that kind of hyper palatable, high fat, high sugar foods. Would you say, again, just, just throw it out? Would you say, have a certain days of the week? Is there kind of any rules or guidelines that you put around the, just in terms of creating a home environment? Yeah, I think the short answer is no. I don't think there is. I think it will depend. In fact, it definitely does depend on the individual. Some people that I've worked with um, are almost perfectionists. And once they've committed, so this is the goal, this is what we're achieving everything's out and everything else is coming back in and, and this is the way we're doing it. And for them, that's fine. Other people, it's got to be graded. Um, so in fact, in when we talk about behavior change, there's sort of 93 recognized behavior change techniques. And when we're talking about this, for example, it, 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 it rang in my, in my head when you said around changing the home environment and do we go all in or do we, is, do we do a bit of a drip feed approach? One of the techniques, and for some people this would work, and for others it, it just wouldn't. So again, it's our judgment as as nutritionists to decide whether it's a good thing or not. Is you can actually do something called overcorrection. And so let's say, for example, I need an athlete, or we need an athlete to sort of quite severely improve the, the let's say, the protein intake. Done some dietary recall. They're looking through. They think they're having a a, a good amount of protein, but it, it's low. It's there's basically like one intake per day. It's like high carbohydrate cereal for breakfast. There's a measly little bit of protein for lunch. And then there may be one decent portion for, for dinner, for example. And let's say we've tried to drip feed it in. Let's get some eggs in for breakfast. Let's get something more. And it's not working. A technique that you could use, and it could, and you can, and it depends how you frame it. You can dress it up as a bit of fun, or you can sort of say this is somebody dead serious. Overcorrection could be, you could say, for the next seven days or the next 10 days. I want you to be a carnivore, for example. So I'm not actually too fussed about um, whether you eat fruit or veg or not, because I'm not going to get to this forever. This is a technique to try and kickstart, like sort of defib some protein um, intake in, in, into the life. So you could say for the next seven to 10 days, you're going to be at home in this environment, 100% carnivore. So we're getting rid of the cereals, we're getting rid of the bread, we're getting rid of the fruits and the veggies so far breakfast. I want you to have some eggs and some Greek yogurt for lunch. I want us to have, um, it could be an omelet with some ham and some chorizo in it for dinner. We're going to have a steak or we're going to have some salmon, whatever it's going to be. So whatever your two or three main meals may be at home, we're going to purposefully overcorrect the behavior, knowing that in 10 days time, 
we're going to sort of come back to some sort of normality and the bread and the cereal is going to come back in around lunch, uh, for, for, for breakfast, for example. We're going to have salads and veggies in for, for lunch and dinner. But hopefully by overcorrecting the behaviour in the first place, because I've been doing it for 10 days, it'll feel bizarre to not put a good portion of protein onto the plate. Um, and so some people might balk at that and think, I am, I am mental. I think, well, no, I'm not getting them to do it forever. I'm not going to give them sort of micronutrient deficiency because they can still eat those type of foods away if they're out or if they're, if they're at work or the commuting, they can still eat what they want. But in this environment, we're doing this to sort of drill the desired behavior in. And then, in, like I said, in a week's time, we're going to go back somewhere to normal. But the new normal will be we have protein at every meal or every snack that we eat. For other people, it could be the other way around. They might think, I'm not doing that, or I can't afford to do that. There's a cost barrier to there, depending on, on what your situation is. And it may be much more of a gradual. What we need to do for the next seven days is we're going to focus. Your dinner's fine. We're going to focus on breakfast. So, And then we'll build it up, build it up, build it up. Um, but I'm, a, I'm actually a big fan of the overcorrection cost. You can make it into a bit of fun. And I'm yet to experience um, failure with, with with that technique. I mean, it's not something that I lead with, but it's when when the obvious education and and corrections aren't happening. It's like, right, let's go all in. Let's let's overcorrect and let's see what happens. And it and it always works. That's a very very cool strategy. Very very cool. I guess you could do that with if someone hasn't got enough vegetables in their diet. It's like right you know be vegan Definitely. for the next 10 days absolutely yeah and again people would say man well not going to do it forever it's for the next 10 days only um yeah it's um it, it, it is quite good yeah absolutely fantastic and again it just comes down to the when it comes to habit formation it's just repetitions and it just doing it more and more and more and it just becomes a new way of doing things and if we can really kind of accelerate the amount of reps you get in in that space of 10 days then hopefully that habit will form a little bit quicker so that's really cool. And just going back to the sort of co-developing strategies, you mentioned it in a team environment, but we could perhaps do that in a home environment as well. Like if you're speaking with the family, the missus, or, or just like the lads you're living with, if it's an academy house, and they can kind of co-create like and develop a strategy there. And everyone likes contributing. Nobody likes being like, shut down, don't do this. So maybe at the start of like a season, it's a case of like, right, these are my objectives for the season. Um, let's co-create a strategy to make sure that my objectives are met. So do you think, have you tried that kind of strategy in the home setting? And do you think there's some kind of a utility for it there? Yeah, it's not something that I've actually done in the home environment, but there's no reason it, it couldn't work. And when you just mentioned co-developing strategies at the beginning of the season, that is something that I like to do with the players um the context is like at Southampton I like to get the lads into small groups and even though I know what I'd like to probably embed or prioritize over the coming season they've got to have input into it um and that's something I like to like like to do with co-develop things at the beginning of the season um that's from the team um context but there's no reason you couldn't do that in a home context with the athlete their wife or partner probably not so the kids if, if, if they're low but and again it'll depend on the sport there's sometimes there's other people that live in the house with them it could be um sort of parents grandparents in-laws um they're in there and just figure out what is the situation of the scenario and let's yeah let's co-develop what the what the what the strategy is going to be um and and yeah and, yeah, and, and run with it and the, the key thing that sometimes people forget to do is just evaluate it and whether that's every six weeks or in, in the initial six weeks, and is this working out? And do we need to do we need to change anything? Is it unfeasible? Um, sometimes I think people forget to close close that loop. Really, do a bit of a feedback loop and either amend and keep it going, rather than it just fizzle out. And you ask sort of 12, 16 weeks down the line, how is it going? You think, oh, we stopped doing that ages ago. Um, so that's a key thing as well. Cool. I'm glad, and again, I'm glad you brought up the evaluation side of things. So. Is there any kind of tools or strategies you use to measure the you know, effectiveness of an intervention or strategy? So if you put something in place, you kind of uh, talk about it with an athlete, like let's do X, Y, Z for the next, I don't know, four, six, eight weeks. Like how do you measure progress or behavior change? 
is there any kind of tools or metrics you kind of use there? Yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll depend on what, on what it is. Um, obviously, if it's a goal-oriented um, sort of challenge that we've set, so we've set um, an outcome goal rather than a behavioural goal, obviously the behavioural will be the process that underpins what the outcome is going to be. We can use skin folds, we can use decks, so we can do bloods to see has it been effective. Um, in terms of the behaviour, it's so hard to genuinely assess behaviour because to an extent you're having to take what an individual tells you at face value and that's why sometimes the metrics can help tell the story or pick you know find the holes and if it if it's not quite true um so it really is it's more of a guided conversations guided sort of interviews some sort of set questions um i'm a big believer in in timelines quite a lot um and and the visual aspect of it so i usually get the um, the big strips of white sort of A0 size paper that you can stick on the wall um, and let's draw some timelines out. Um, so from waking up in the morning to going to bed in an evening, what's it look like? When are you commuting? Where's your training? Where's your training window in the day? Where's the food? What are we eating? Blah, blah, blah. And so record that and keep that. And then, like I say, in six weeks down the line, for example, it could be a case of, right, let's redo that activity and let's just see, does it look the same or has it has it, has it changed? Um, and if on paper it's saying it's changed, but the the outcome hasn't changed, the body comp's the same, or the weight's the same, or the uh, you know the physical output, whatever it is, is the same, then either the intervention's not working, or there's some there's some fibs being told, maybe. Um, but that's what helps just doing the I guess the quantitative and the qualitative sort of hand in hand um, to help put the big the big picture together. Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, certainly a large element of underreporting for sure. And I guess that just comes down to the coach's relationship with, with the athlete. So, you know, if they ask them, if you ask them a question and they say, yes, I've done that, what, what does that yes mean? Is it yes, I've actually done it? Or is it yes, just to get you off my back type thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's good just having that kind of the process kind of monitoring and then ultimately the outcome, because that is, again, the bottom line. That is what you've set to sort of achieve um so yeah that, that is absolutely huge so if an athlete then succeeds in their outcome goal do you have any kind of rewards or is there any kind of incentives put in place and if someone doesn't achieve that outcome is there any kind of cost to that so i'm just wondering what you do at the end of that kind of i don't know whether it's like a four-week block six-week block whatever that time timeline is what do you do at the end in terms of where they've achieve that reward or sorry, achieve that goal or having achieved that goal? Yeah, no, great question. And so, sometimes this needs to be factored in right at the beginning of the intervention. And again, it, there's so many variables depending on the context of, is this a person that's just doing it for themselves? Um, it, if it's in a professional environment, um, is, um, for example, team selection, um, something that's going to be um, dependent on whether they achieve these things or not. Um, so some people don't need external motivation to do what you want them to do. They're doing it for sort of internal reasons, intrinsic reasons. Um, it could be something as simple as I don't want to, if it's a lad's holiday at the end of the season, I don't want to be the fattest lad sat on the beach, you know, with the, you know, with, with the group. And that's all they need. As long as I'm, not the worst that's all they need as long as i'm the second worst is good enough for me i just don't want to be the, the the worst out of the group for others it's a lot more serious um and for others it's got to be um to an extent the need the incentive to do it or the other way around i guess it comes again it comes down to personality types really is the need the threat of consequence to, to get them to do it some people prefer I think everyone prefers the carrot to the stick, but some people need the threat of the stick to get them to do it anyway. And again, depending on the scenario, what that stick looks like depends. Um, If we're talking about in professional football, the stick ideally would be if you don't do what we need you to do or what the manager would like you to do rather than me, um, you don't get selected. Um, That's not always the case. So they can still sort of perform suboptimal day-to-day sort of lifestyle choices and behaviours and still be, in theory, rewarded with 
a starting 11 shirt, which not just a nutrition, that could be recovery, that can be physiotherapy, that can be, it undermines the entire sort of sports science and medicine sort of program sometimes when it's like that. Um, if we're talking about jockeys, for example, the consequence of not doing what we need them to do is they know they're going to have to acutely lose weight on the day, which as a general rule of thumb, they don't like doing. Um, so the prospect of if I do this right for the next 12 to 16 weeks with Dan, with Chris, I won't have to jump in the sauna, jump in the bath, sit in the car, blasting 35 degree heat out in a sweatsuit, you know, whatever the method is, that's the reward. So some of it, and then, but then for other people, it is physically tangible sort of rewards. It, it all depends on, I guess, the person in the context and some people need it and some people don't. And if it's a person that does need some sort of, um, guides keep them between the lines be that carrot or stick you need to make sure that's part of the intervention probably early on so they're aware of it rather than all of a sudden this is the goal and these is this is the process we'll review in six weeks and then in six weeks time it comes along and then surprise you didn't do it and then there's a there's a there's a there's a consequence they'll probably never work with you again. So, yeah, you, you, if there's going to be a consequence, I think it needs to be agreed, or even if it's not agreed, i.e. it's come from a manager, someone higher up the chain, it's understood and it's been accepted, and then it's not us that are the, the, the bad people then. Um, we're just the we're just doing that job. Um, but, yeah, I think if they're agreed and understood um, earlier on, um, it can it can be a reminder and it can keep people sort of between the lines and keep them going um, during those days when, you know, motivation wanes all the time for whatever reason, as we said earlier, it could be motivated, it could be emotional, it could be whatever's going on. Sometimes that reminder of there's a reward at the end of this, or there's a consequence at the end of this. Um, yeah. Keeps people honest. Yeah, absolutely. And I like that you said that is a, you need to kind of remind them that there's a constant reminder there because some people might start like a, I don't know, a nutrition program or an approach to improve the eating habits and they get 10 weeks down the line and they almost forget why they started doing it. Like they forgot about the consequence, they forgot about the potential reward from it. So I think just uh, having some kind of method in there just has a consistent kind of tap on the shoulder. Like, right, this is the reward, this is a consequence and it just helps them drive kind of behavior and just, again, help them kind of stay on track, should I say, stay on it. And so, yeah, that, that is absolutely huge. When we kind of look at, say, again, just going back to our home environments, say it is with the family, the partner, and stuff like that, do you feel like there's, do you, or do you encourage like them to have a conversation with the other kind of household member, just like, right, this is what I'm doing, this is the reward, this is a potential consequence, I need you on my side to help support that? Do you encourage those, actively encourage those conversations to happen? Or? Yeah, absolutely. And, and where the athlete feels comfortable or I've built up a good enough relationship with them, I'd encourage them to allow me to have that conversation as, as well. We all know, like, for example, my wife's a physio. And anytime she tries to give me any type of like physiotherapy advice, I'll just do like, I'm not listening because I'm that comfortable with her. I can just turn off. And that's, that's, you do that with your, with your significant other and, and you're in a circle. Whereas I could have the same issue and, um, an external physiotherapy tells me the exact same information. I listen to it because, for whatever reason, you listen because it's someone that you don't know, you know, you're not as, as close to them. So you you feel like you've got to listen and you take it more seriously. I think everybody can relate to something similar to that. And that can happen with athletes and the and the significant others. And so sometimes I'll say, rather than you going home with this resource and this advice and this message, let me jump on the call or let me pop around. We'll have a conversation as a trio. Um and they are more likely to listen. I think actually this is serious. This person's in my house sort of saying, we're doing this for this person and these are the reasons why and this is what we're trying to achieve and you can help us with that. And, and the, the sense of empowerment and the sense of importance sort of goes up a notch. Um, and so, yeah, if it, it, the question was, do I encourage it? It's like, absolutely. And if you can get, um, or if your athletes feel comfortable to allow us as nutritionists to have the conversation as well or be involved in that conversation, I think you get more benefit out of it because um, significant others are more likely to listen to, um, in air quotes, an, an expert um, coming in, even though you know, they, they might have been 
parroting what the expert is saying. If the expert is actually saying it, they're more likely to listen and and and, and chip in with the, with the intervention. Yeah, yeah, very very cool. No, that that's awesome. So one of the big things um, surrounding what behavior changes, ultimately knowing what they're doing, what they're doing, when they're doing it, and why they're doing it. So the educational side of things. So do you how how do you typically educate your athletes so that's kind of question number one and do we feel like education is enough or do we need more than just education along that side of things yeah um so again it's almost like every every question you answer i always just um my first words are always it depends so um it's, it's always the case it's yeah, always the case um, i wish i would just give you a straightforward answer um i'll give you a couple of i guess different context answers so in in racing for example when we have a a licensing process so if jockey wants to get the license um at that point just because of how the licensing system set up um all we can do to an extent is give them education and it's done in a, in a group-wide setting because we have a any nowhere near enough we've got a very limited amount of time and i need to give them the basics and there's not the time there's that i can do at the minute to make that any greater so i've got to educate them as a, as a group it's always a small group it's only about eight or ten at, at any one time so it's about um getting the fundamentals across the most important um piece of information that's going to have the most impact on their early careers across first there was a bad habit back in previous times of equipping them with theoretical knowledge and i came around thinking like these athletes as you just said, they want to know. In fact, when I interviewed in some focus groups, the phrase that came through was, or the paraphrased sort of um, theme that came through was, um, the real world problems, or the problems to the real world, as I'm speaking backwards here, it was the solutions to the real world problems faced every day by jockeys in terms of weight management and making weight. So instead of telling them what a carbohydrate is and how it stores as glycogen and X, Y, Z, it's like, this is useless. Tell them what to eat at what time, in what quantity, and probably, yes, tell them a little bit of why, but just tell them what to do as a, as a collective group. And then when they get out there into their career, um, I'll then eventually pick them up one at a time and do some individual stuff and figure out um, what education or what knowledge does this person need on an individual level? Because again, everyone's life, everyone's situation is slightly different, although we all do the same thing for a living their day-to-day -day, uh, routines are, are slightly different. And naturally, people have got different uh, starting levels of knowledge. In, sort of paradoxically, in, in a football environment, um, in the two seasons that I've been at Southampton, I've only ever addressed the squad as a whole as like 30 people once. I think, as a general rule of thumb, group-based education is not that effective. Um, for, for many reasons. It depends on what time of day you get them. If you get them straight after lunch, they're falling to sleep. Um, you know, depending on the delivery method, purely just purveying information from the front of a room is not, not that effective. So as I mentioned earlier, when we talked about co-developing, I like to get the lads in small groups. Um, so break that group of 30 down into groups of five, so six groups of five. And just as and when we can get it in around over the season, we'll, um, we'll have some topics that I want to cover. And they, they become much more around conversation pieces rather than I'm the expert, I'm saying this is best practice, go ahead and do it. It's more of a case of what do you currently do? What's your experience? It's more experiential learning. We're going to trial this. I'm going to come back to you next week. I'd like you to give me some feedback on how you found it. Why do we think this? And, and make it much more of a, of a conversation piece. Even though my job really is to equip them with the knowledge, I think the the method of delivery of that knowledge has got to be sport specific and and context specific and athlete specific and not everyone you know it's sort of cliche and everyone learns in in, in the same way um and is knowledge alone enough it definitely isn't enough i mean the amount of again everyone's got different starting points in sport i've got i'm working with athletes who have come through full academy systems since eight or ten years old there are 10 years worth of nutrition education in one form or another through the, through the academy system. They know what to do. They actually know what to eat at what time in what quantity and the reasons why, yet they still don't do it. So this is why it comes back to the much bigger piece what we've already covered around how those environments set up properly 
and actually what is their values and their beliefs around the food? What's their emotional intelligence, their emotional consistency like to make the right food choice at the right time? Assuming they've got the environment set up and they've got the commitment and the, like I said, with the emotionally stable when it comes to food, they've got the knowledge to do what they need to do. But on its own, knowledge is a waste of time. And there's a million examples just from everyday life as to, as to examples as to how we don't apply the knowledge that we've got, whether that's someone that smokes cigarettes to alleviate stress or feel part of a social group or um, we all drink alcohol, but some people binge drink, even though you're thinking like, you, you know, physically you've experienced it, what it feels like the next day, yet, yet we still do it. We know what's going to happen physically. We know the consequences on as health, generally speaking, but we do it anyway. So knowledge on its own um, is is not an indicator of behaviour. And we all as practitioners need to be aware of that. And our athletes themselves need to also be aware of it just because I know what to do. Um, doesn't mean right, I'll invest a few quid on doing an online course and upskilling my own knowledge. You've got to be proactive. You've got to make changes to your environments and probably get the people around you on board as well if you're serious about making some some meaningful changes. Yeah, 100%. And as uh, I think as Ralph Waldo Emerson quoted, like an ounce of action is worth a ton of theory. So, you know, you can be as educated, you can have a PhD in nutrition if you want, but if you don't implement any of it, then it's pretty much pointless and then you're not going to improve. So that that's actually huge. And I completely... Um, agree and have the same experiences with regards to the group environments like when you like last year and say wasps for example i did one um talk at the start of the season which we kind of saw straight away like it's the end of the day after lunch they've had a huge day of training um you know they've had a lot of content in terms of technical tactical they've had the sports like support on there and they were completely gone and lived like three minutes into it. I was like, this is just a waste of time. So after that, it's like, right, we'll just do more one-to-ones, more small group stuff. And it's far more impactful. And as you said, like everyone's at different levels with their own kind of skill set and nutrition knowledge. So having that conversation with them is far more yeah, empowering in terms of what, what they can do off the back of it. So, yeah, I think that whole kind of big group kind of setting with certain athletes anyway is yeah, it's kind of uh, it's kind of gone, and I think that's one of some of the expectations for nutritionists. Like we want you to come in, deliver a series of workshops and stuff. Where it really, really just isn't the case um, for some athletes anyway, especially in like a team based team based setting for sure. So cool. Um, that that was, that was really really um, yeah, very thought provoking, and uh, I know I certainly took a lot away from that. Um, so. Do you um do you have any kind of like final kind of pointers with regards to an athlete if they're looking to make a change? So if, for example, an athlete came to you and we know they're just inconsistent, what would you say is like the top three? I know it's going to be difficult because you're going to start with it depends, but what are the top three things an athlete can go away right now to implement into their own athletic development plan to improve the eating habits? If you had to pick a top three, what would you suggest? Yeah. Yeah, you put me on the spot here, Chris. Um, <laughs> no, um, you know, the first thing that I do is actually make sure that you're changing the, the, the right behaviours because as humans, we tend to go for the path of least resistance and think, well, that, that sounds quite an easy, an easy quick win. And sometimes the quick wins are the right things. But if we talk about changing performance, the one thing that I, that I always start with is making a list of all, I guess, the performance, nutrition behaviours from what we're we doing to support health, what we're doing around the training windows to fuel the fuel the session before it, within it, if if necessary, and drive the adaptation after it. And what we're doing on competition day, whether that's a, a race or whether that's a, that's a match. And so I'd make a list of what are all the nutrition behaviors or the nutrition actions that we need to take to do all those things, and be honest, do a little bit of an assessment on which things do I currently do and do well, which things do I do what I'm inconsistent with and where are the actual areas? If we list them down, that's a blind spot or if I'm honest, I don't do it anywhere near as good as I should do. I just don't do it. That'd be my first one. Do a bit of a needs analysis on where are the areas. The second would be of that list of, I guess the amber, the red and the ambers, the things that we're not doing very well at all, or the things that we're doing inconsistently prioritize maybe three of them. You might have a list of like six, seven, eight, maybe more 
if you're trying to do too many things at once, it'll all just come down like an ounce of cards. So I'd say pick the best, in air quotes, three. And the best may be the three that's going to give you the biggest return on performance. But then one of them actually may be maybe one of those quick fixes just to get the ball rolling. So pick the best three and you'd make a, make a, I guess, a, a judgment on what those three are. Um, and then, so then, then the third one would be, I guess, ultimately what we have discussed here on this, on, on this podcast, the third would be hit rewind, listen to this podcast again. Um, and, and are the environments that you are in most of the time set up to do what you want them to do? I think the environment for me, is the key one because I think most people can exercise a certain level of common sense and say and odd quick knowledge, quickly learn the, the key knowledge to know what to do. Are the environment set up to 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 do what we've just shortlisted and we're going to implement, do the review, and then hopefully change those three behaviors, go back to your list, what are the next three that we're going to do? And over time, hopefully if everything's on a green light because everything's um everything's in place. Yeah, absolutely perfect. So Top three is do needs analysis, look out areas you can develop, identify the red amber, it might be perhaps seven, eight, nine, ten. pick the top three, some low hanging fruit to get those quick wins, and then just make sure the environment is supportive to mold and change those uh, behaviors. So that is absolutely superb. And again, just uh, pick three, do them over time. And then once you've got the greens there, then you pick the next three, perhaps the next three red ambers. And then over the course of 12 18 months that's when we have a nice list of greens and you got high performance eating so absolutely incredible so dan really really appreciate your time you've delivered a huge amount of uh, value today and i know that a lot of athletes will take much of this away and start implementing it into their own into their own lives so thank you very much it's been an absolute pleasure and uh for anybody who wants to follow you um where's the or get in touch where's the best place to do so um, I try to be reasonably active on Twitter, so you can get me on Twitter on at Nutrition Dan, and I'm on Instagram at, at Nutrition Dan M. Nice, very, very nice. So, Dan, once again, a big thank you, absolute pleasure and a privilege, and uh, have a fantastic bank holiday weekend. Likewise, pleasure is mine. Thank you again for having us.